Today we have John Kasman on the show. Are you looking to learn from a marketing veteran? John Kasman is a 15-year marketing veteran who worked on major accounts such as GM. And then he leveraged his marketing skills, delivering success in the multifamily industry. He's partnered with investors on more than 900 units, valued at over $90 million. John has a focus on helping others learn to be successful, and he hosts a very popular podcast called Target Market Insights, Multifamily Marketing. From understanding your target market, creating compelling content, building relationships with investors, and so much more, this episode is for you. Before we jump into the intro, don't take a chance on missing out on a future episode to learn from proven seasoned investors. Go to Apple Podcasts, hit subscribe, and please select the five-star review. Thank you. We are currently at 292 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, and we are shooting to get to the 300 mark. We are so close. Thank you for stepping up. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on John Kasman before we start the show. John lives in Cincinnati, and he used to be from the Chicago area. He started investing on his own while in marketing with a W-2 job. He started to scale up in 2017 and now has partnered on over 900 units valued at over $90 million. This guy has a very successful podcast. He's a speaker at many multifamily events and is just an all-around good guy looking to help others. Now, onto the show. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest with us today. We have John Kasman. John, appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, Darren. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely. So just a little bit about how I know John. Um, this will be our first conversation together, but we did share a uh, panel that we were both on. Uh, we were both speakers on a panel uh, on Dan Hanford's Multi-Investor um, Nation Summit, and that was an online multifamily conference. And um, so I got to hear about him, and I was excited about bringing him on. But I've also known of John for a while um, and kind of have watched him from a distance because um, my first business partner on my first syndication deal, uh, Raj Gupta, he um, attended one of John Kasman's meetup groups and was interviewed by John and it was recorded and it was put on Facebook and I watched it and, and um, you know, they did a great job together. And, and so I'm excited to have him on here today. Um, John, typically the first question I ask is how many properties and how many units uh, you currently own? Yeah, thanks for asking me. And uh, it's great to be on here. Raj obviously is a, it's a good friend of mine. So it's great to, to meet you or start that connection back with that interview with Raj. 
Um, but yeah, as far as our portfolio, we've helped investors get into about a thousand units. You know, we've actually sold a couple of those properties. As of now, we're going through the acquisition process on other properties, but about a thousand units is where we sit. That's, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, a lot of people in today's market, both buyers and sellers, right? I mean, it depends on where you are in the business plan. And, um, you know, I, a couple episodes ago, I had a gentleman on the, on Swap Neil Agarval. I don't know if you know him, but he's, he's at like 20,000 plus units. And, um, you know, he had an interesting perspective. He's like, look, I'm, I'm both buying and selling. And, you know, I've got one portfolio that I'm selling in a three and a half gap and I'm buying another portfolio at a four and a half gap. So, you know, net net, I'm increasing my returns in the portfolio. So, um, you know, everybody has a little different perspective on it. And, um, you know, you, you, you buy for different reasons, right? Um, so you're in the Midwest. How does that impact uh, the way you look at deals? Yeah. I mean, listen, you're right. Right now, it's a great time to be both a buyer and a seller. And it's really about just understanding the market dynamics, your business plan. I, I wouldn't get so caught up in it being a seller's market or whatever the case may be. You always want to look for opportunities. And for us, it comes down to looking at the current portfolio, looking at individual properties, looking at our business plan and asking ourselves, hey, if we hold on to this property and continue to execute this business plan, what does that exit look like or what are our exit options versus what is the value today? And I think you have to ask yourself that certainly loans play a, a role in that and all those other things. Uh, but if it makes sense to sell today and, and cash out on a property uh, and roll that into, you know, a new opportunity where you can create value, then you, you take advantage of that. You know, for us, we love the Midwest. And one of the reasons we love the Midwest is that there, first of all, there, there's a lot of growing areas in the Midwest. Um, cash flow is huge here, right? So obviously great cash flow markets in the Midwest. And I think one of the things that people miss out on is that cash flow is really the thing that allows you to uh, have a baseline, baseline in operations, baseline for your projections. And if the market changes, it's great to have a good cash flowing property versus something where you're focused on appreciation. I know people love maybe the West Coast or East Coast markets. The challenge I always see is that if you buy a property at, let's say a three and a half cap, as you said, buy a three and a half cap property, you know, now you're in a situation where you really have to have that appreciation to make that deal work because it's not cash flowing that significant, right? So it's not going to be pushing off you know, uh, seven, eight, nine, 10% annual returns, you know, it's only going to be able to deliver a couple of, you know, a couple of points of, of returns at this point. So you really have to look at that and ask yourself, you know, where's the risk, where's the upside and make sure that you have a balanced portfolio, nothing wrong with doing appreciation deals or deals that are more heavily focused on appreciation. But I would urge you to make sure you have some strong cash flow deals as well. And the Midwest is great. Not just any place in the Midwest, but we like strong growing markets, the same fundamentals other investors like. You know, we like population growth, job growth, industry diversification. And we find that in markets like Louisville, Kentucky, Indianapolis, Cincinnati, Columbus. Um, you know, there are a lot of great markets where you can find great cash flow that still has some appreciation potential in the Midwest. So are those the markets that you focus in on? Uh, you mentioned Louisville, Columbus, and Indy? 
Yeah, so we, we like kind of a two-hour radius from where I live. It just kind of conveniently happens to be that we're centrally located, two hours from Indianapolis, you know, about an hour and a half from Columbus, two hours to Louisville, Kentucky, a little less than two hours to Louisville, Kentucky, uh, Lexington. And yeah, those are great markets where we see good cash flow, um, good a good amount of inventory, as well as some appreciation potential because these are growing markets. You live in Chicago? I live in Cincinnati now. So I was oh, in Chicago Cincinnati. for eight years okay. and I moved to Cincinnati two years ago. Fantastic. So a lot of people moving out of Chicago, Chicago, California, New York. Do you see that based on your network that you still have from Chicago? Yeah, absolutely. And there are a couple of things. And some of this stuff is, um, you know, I always pay attention to trends. You know, I spent 15 years in corporate America and marketing and market research is obviously a key component to, to any marketing. And one of the things we looked at was migration patterns. And when you look at those coastal markets, particularly California, you look at New York, you look at Chicago, some of these gateway cities, what's happening is they've become so expensive. Um, and because, you know, wages really haven't kept up with the cost of living, people are having to sit and look at their paycheck and make some real hard decisions. Not to mention taxes, you know, state taxes, um, housing taxes, all of that stuff is really starting to take a bigger chunk of the paycheck and people are looking at quality of life. And if you can move to another market down south, you can move to the Midwest, you get a bigger bang for your buck. It's really enticing to people. Um, the legislation, you know, in some of these markets is becoming really overbearing for some people where they really feel like they want to get out. They don't want to deal with all the legislation and it really makes it easier to do business. So being in a business friendly environment, I mean, jobs are what people move for. So if you have a hard time finding a job, if you have a hard time paying your bills, it's easy to start to look at your other options and moving to more cost-friendly place is certainly one of the things that a lot of people have done. And that's why you see people leaving these cities. Yeah. I mean, that totally makes sense. And, and you're one of those guys and, and I don't know if that's why you moved, but um, you know, I'm, I'm in the Dallas market and I'm originally an East coast guy. I'm originally from Connecticut. I spent uh, 14 years in South Florida and I've been in the Dallas market now for a little over 11 years. And, um, it's amazing to be in one of these markets where job growth, population growth, um, and the cost of living is just, you know, so much more favorable than some of these other markets. And, um, you know, it's getting more expensive in, in Dallas and in Texas. Um, you know, people are moving in it's, it's creating, you know, more pressure on home prices and, you know, multifamily prices, et cetera. Um, but, it's still so much more affordable than being on the coast. So, you know, I think that um, I kind of don't see it changing for a while. Like some of these markets that that population shift, but um, you know, uh, COVID definitely, you know, prompted more of that to happen faster. Um, but, but I think that people, like you said, are going to continue to go where the jobs are. Yeah. They're, they're macro trends and it's, you know, there are a lot of, components that play into it. Uh, part of it is, you know, when you look at it, there's a cost of living. Uh, we talked about jobs, people following where the jobs are. And if you really keep it somewhat basic and simple, you know, wherever the employer set up shop, that's where people are going to go. I had a great conversation with my grandparents, um, you know, over the last weekend. 
And I really just wanted to learn more about like, you know, I'm from Cleveland. So I wanted to learn like, how did you get to Cleveland? Cause they're from the South. They're from Alabama. And one of the big things that drove them there was jobs, manufacturing jobs back in the fifties, you know, forties and fifties, right. Uh, up into the sixties. So they moved to Cleveland um, for manufacturing jobs. Uncle was up there, had a great job and, you know, was able to, to, bring other people up there and help them find jobs. And, you know, I was, my grandmother was telling me that, you know, my grandfather didn't even have a job when he moved and there were so many jobs available. He just had to get there and then put in a couple of applications and boom, you got a job somewhere, you know, great paying job. And the middle class was really built on that. You know, it wasn't really built on education and so many other things back then. It was really built on the labor force. And right now, as you fast forward and you look at the decline in population in cities like Cleveland and Detroit, where those manufacturing jobs have have left, now you have to look and see where, where are the jobs going now. And you've got a lot of companies that are setting up shop in the South, and that's where a lot of jobs are. A lot of transportation, logistics companies, you know, in, in the Midwest, but we're talking more, again, the Louisville, the Cincinnati, the places where you can get to the bulk of the rest of the country in a day. You know, if you're doing same day right. shipping, uh, it's a little bit easier if you are, you know, more in a, in a central location to get packages up to New York, as well as to get them down to to Dallas, to Florida, to uh, other parts of the country. So that central location is becoming really, really key for some of these key industries here. So you are following the jobs. And to your point, I don't see that changing because that's a macro trend that we've been seeing take place for over two, three de decades at this point. So I don't see that changing. Um, what I would say is these these gateway cities in particular, they're going to have to do a better job with retention. And sometimes they're saddled with kind of legacy costs, you know, legacy pension plans for teachers, for fire departments, for police officers, things that people weren't thinking about 50 years ago when right. they, they set these things up. But that you know, that, that can get pretty costly. And there's some real threat that some of these cities may end up going bankrupt because they don't have the funds set up right now to cover some of those expenses. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm always surprised that like even back in the last great recession, that there wasn't more of that on the, on the local government side, um, you know, where, where cities and counties just were financially in, in trouble because of those pensions. But it in a big way, it hasn't happened yet, but, you know, maybe maybe it'll come down the road. Hey, two things that you said. One, um, you went and talked to your grandparents. I just want to applaud you because, you know, here you are super successful um, and you still went to seek advice from and, and get a better understanding from people that are older than you, you know? And I think that that, you know, is is something that, a lot of uh, successful people do. They're always looking for uh, other people that they can learn from. And, you know, it doesn't have to always be, you know, somebody from that's wealthy, you know, that, that killed it financially. You could still learn from other people that have gone through different cycles and different, you know, um, economic trends. And so um, I applaud you for doing that. Secondly, you mentioned that you're a marketing guy. I know that you're a marketing guy. Um, can you share with the listeners kind of your background, 15 years in corporate marketing? What, you know, what was your role? What types of companies were you with? Uh, you know, what were you focused on? Yeah, so I worked for, you know, a couple of different companies, but I started off really my first 
a big job, if you will, was at General Motors. You know, I was uh, working at an agency. GM was my client. And long story short, my um, my client got promoted. They liked my work enough to to ask me to interview for the job and, and hired me for that role. So I was at GM for about four and a half years. And I was there from 2007 to 2011. So if you have your, <laughs> your calendar in front of you, you remember when the recession took place, I was yes. there during all of that. So- the big thing for me was watching a company that was quote unquote too big to fail go through these challenges. It just taught me a lot. Um, it taught me a lot like about, what? well, I, I think one of the things is that the music can't stop, you know, and I think a lot of people miss that. They just assume things are going to keep being great forever and keep rolling on. And, you know, the writing was on the wall for a while. I mean, there was an article back in 2005. It was a, I don't know what magazine did it, but it was all black and it was just a negative story on GM and whether or not it was going to fail. And I recall seeing it back in 2005, two years prior to me joining the company. And that was one of my concerns was like, hey, how healthy is the company at the time? Toyota was all the rage. They were very concerned with the Japanese um, vehicles. Um, you know, we had Toyota, you had, you know, Nissan, you had uh, Honda. So, you know, the American automotive industry was having a tough fight. And as you look at all those things, you look at where sales were at and truly trying to understand where the company was headed. Um, when we went into bankruptcy, um, I remember there was a, a statement that was made by one of the CMOs and he talked about the different brands that we had and how there were too many brands in the automotive industry, but he didn't feel like we had too many. Um, some of these other companies should go away with it. And I just remember thinking like, that makes sense if you can properly fund the brands you have. But I worked on the Pontiac brand. And if anybody remembers Pontiac, we didn't get to do a whole lot of like, big marketing things. We made everything we did look and feel big, but my budgets were tiny comparison <laughs> to the team at Chevrolet and Cadillac. Um, so I just felt like, Hey, we didn't really have proper budgets. We didn't have, you know, the things we needed to be successful in, in launch, but we made the most of what we had. And we always made what we did have feel big. So learning how to be scrappy as a marker was one of the things I picked up. Um, the other big piece was understanding what that impact was on me personally and all the employees watching your, your boss's boss on CNN talking about the business. You just had a conversation in the hallway and they told you, keep your head down. Don't worry about it. Everything's good. Just do your best. And then you watch them on CNN saying, if we don't sell 15,000 vehicles, um, you know, we're, we're going to go bankrupt. And I'm like, wait, what? You just told me to keep my head down. So, I mean, there, there's, there's a corporate side of thing. And um, there's certainly politics, but I think the biggest takeaway was that no matter what company you work for, no matter how big that company is, you're disposable. And it is up to you to figure out how you will take care of yourself and your family. And that paycheck, that W-2 job, it's not guaranteed. I don't care how skilled you are. I don't care how great you are. I don't care who you're connected with. That person get, can get fired any moment. That person can retire, can get pushed out, can get shipped. Um, you know, you can become, you know, too costly from a financial standpoint. Uh, maybe they want to get younger, cut salaries. So it's you're expendable. And that's the way the business is. That same person I was referencing crushed it 
all through bankruptcy, helped lead the company through that process, you know, got a lot of public publicity and ultimately they shipped her to Shanghai. The new person they brought in, didn't really care for, shipped her to Shanghai. And I just sat there. I was like, man, for like a year and a half, this person was the face of the company. And we're not talking the face of a company. We're talking about the face of a huge conglomerate like General Motors. Yeah. And the politics of it, you know, came in. And so I just, for me, it, it humbled me to the point where it's like, never believe your own press. I don't care what you've done. We did some great ad campaigns. I, I had a hundred million dollar advertising budget, you know, I was on, did some stuff with 50 Cent and Maxim and party parties here and Super Bowl and all sorts of cool things, man. But at no moment did I believe that I was uh, driving this ship or anything like that. I always knew it was the brand manager for this brand. And I just happened to wear that title that day. And I remember as an intern, this guy told me, he said, you want to work so you get everything for your name, not because you hold a title and not because of the company you work for. So never fall in love with a business card. You know, it was really the biggest thing I took away and make sure that you start to build your own so that if one day you're just not somebody's guy, they just don't like you. You don't get that promotion to partner or whatever the case may be. You have your plan B in place and you're kind of solidified no matter what. I think that's huge. Um, you know, learning lesson, just, you know, being disposable. Um, it brings a story to my mind when, when I, I was in the software business, software sales, and I had this awesome manager. He, he was just great. And um, he married uh, a woman in the same company and he ran my division. And then she basically ran the largest division sales. Uh, for the company. And they were both high flyers. They both made fantastic money. And, you know, they decided to like chase the career and they never had kids. And then all of a sudden, similar to your Shanghai story, you know, the wife got up where all of a sudden they brought somebody new in. They brought somebody young and they moved her aside and put her in, in a different role that wasn't as, you know, prominent. And I could tell, you know, I was friends with my, you know, my boss and he, I could tell he was just crushed, you know, and that was a big takeaway for me that, you know, there's no loyalty between, you know, corporations and their employees. It's like, what have you done for me lately? And then, if not, you, you know, you move on. So um, when you hear other people in the financial world talk about multiple streams of income and building wealth and uh, passive income, you know, I wish that people had really drilled that in my head earlier. You know, um, I've only been in the real estate game for about three and a half years. And, um, you know, I think it's so important for people to realize that, Hey, you could be a high flyer right now, but you know, you think that you're in a, in a safe, by safety place, by having a job, but at any point in time, you know, you could be out. Yeah. You're spot on, man. And during that time, right. So I remember uh, in particular, there was two phases to it. Cause I was told, Hey, you're fine, John. We love you. 
the reality is I was a junior executive at that time. So I wasn't making that much money. Right. So they needed, they still need people to run the company and do work. So, uh, from that standpoint, they were like, you're good, but you just never know. I mean, it's just so much uncertainty. You just never know what could happen. And I remember one of the days they were doing layoffs. Um, I came in as late as I could possibly come in without, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> ruffling feathers. Cause I just didn't want to accidentally see some stuff and all that. I'm like, Hey, they're going to be doing layoffs. Pretty much. They were, they were waiting for you on the elevator. So when you got off the elevator, come onto the floor, really? if you were getting Lego. Yeah. So I knew it was going to be like that. So I, I made it a point to come as late as possible. Right. So I get there uh, probably about like nine 15 or so. We typically start the day around eight 30, but I got there about nine 15. And, um, on my phone, there was uh, a voice message waiting for me. And there was no one waiting on the elevator when I came up, but there was a voice message. So I'm like, oh my goodness. And in my head, I'm just like, I just talked to my boss last night. He told me I was good. Don't worry about it. But he told me it was going to go down today. So I'm like, oh, so about 15 seconds, man, my heart's pounding. I'm going through sure. every scenario you can think of. I go from rage to like, I can't believe this dude lied to me. He set me up. He could have told me and gave me a chance to dude, just, it, just check the voicemail. You don't know what it is. Pick it up. <laughs> and there's not a lot of people there because everyone did the same thing I did. It was like, dude, we're not, I'm not trying to be here for this. So I pick up the phone, check the voicemail. And it's from the guy who used to sit in front of me. And, um, he basically says, I've been with this company for 22 years and I was just let go this morning. Um, he had some medical issues. So he was on, you know, had some medication. He had no idea how he was going to pay for that medication. He felt hurt, uh, betrayed. And, you know, he was extremely vulnerable and very upset in his voicemail. He sent this to everyone on the floor, right? Wow. So there's, there's a button that you could push. I think in hindsight, he probably wish he could take it back, but. Right. I remember listening to that voicemail, my heart sunk. And I had two big takeaways. One was empathy for this guy who had dedicated his career to his company, had essentially planned on retiring. And at, I think at 25 years in, you get a pension, 30 years, you get the full retirement, everything, right? So he was three years away from getting at least a pension. And I think he got, you know, whatever his, his separation package was instead. So empathy was the first emotion I felt how rough that could be, must be for, for this person. What is he going to do? All that kind of stuff. The second was, I never want to feel like that. I never want to feel that caught off guard, hopeless, helpless. Um, I don't want to be in that position. So in my head, I remember reading rich dad, poor dad some years prior. And literally in that moment, I made a decision to say, I don't know when, how, or what, but we're going to invest in real estate and we're going to find other ways to make some income that is not tied to this W-2. So, um, you know, found a couple of things and it took a while to get going, but I, that moment cemented it for me. It made me say, hey, we need to invest. We need to figure out how in the world to do it. The only challenge for me is I was still in Detroit. And at that time, uh, again, everyone I knew who owned real estate in Detroit was trying to fire sell it. So I didn't feel comfortable buying stuff in Detroit at that moment. Right. Right. Um, so it took me a couple of years to to actually get settled and move. And that was a big lesson for me is that you actually don't have to live in the city you're investing in. I didn't know that at the time, you know, they were talking 2008, 2009. I just assumed, hey, you need to buy it, manage it, run it, whatever. Uh, I didn't know you could invest out of market. So that's obviously something that I'm aware of now. And I try to make sure other people are aware of as well. That, that's huge. I, I got like chills when you were saying that story, because 
you know, it's like good and bad that you, you went through that because it, it forced you to come to that realization. And then, and then you went and took action, you know? So, um, it's, you, it's not enough just to read the book. You actually have to go out and do it. Right. And, but it starts with a decision and you decided in that moment, look, I'm going to do something. I'm going to buy real estate. I don't know how to do it yet. You know, and that's okay, not knowing, but you could still make that decision. And then, and then you went looking, you know, and actually started it. And now you have over a thousand units, you know, and not only are you helping yourself and your family, but you're helping other investors grow their wealth. And so, and it all was prompted by that, that fear, that, that uneasiness of being, you know, hundred percent dependent on the company for your job. Um, so I want listeners to understand that, you know, so some, some people are on different parts of the journey that they've already started, you know, um, and they're looking to scale up and there's other people that are just in the beginning stages and they're like, I want to do this, but I don't know how, you know? So hearing stories like yourself is, is really inspiring, I think for other people. So that's fantastic. Hey, um, it sounds like that kind of prompted you to, to get into real estate. Since then, you, you know, you have a meetup group, you, you know, you have your own podcast. Talk about why you started those and, and when and, you know, what the benefits are to you and to others. Yeah. So before I answer that, I just want to, I want to fill in a little bit of the gap because there's, um, there's some context I think is really important. So that was 2009-ish, right? Um, we really didn't start working with other investors, raising capital, doing some of these bigger deals until like 2017, right? 2016, 17. So we're talking eight, almost eight years or so before we really kind of, uh, scaled this business. So I was working full time. And I think the big lesson for, um, all the investors listening to this show, first of all, you know, as you mentioned, you have to be aware. The first piece is just being aware that this is an option, so you can get that from books, podcasts, t- attending events, whatever the case is, but you have to know this is an option. The second thing is you have to be interested in it. It has to be a fit for you, um, but then you have to take action. You've got to commit to it. You have to take action. And the way I did it is not the way I would recommend someone else to do it if they were in my same situation. I was a busy professional with a pretty demanding job. I left GM and went to an advertising agency where I was working a lot of hours a week. My wife was working a lot of hours a week. And ultimately I spent a lot of my time either working in my day job or working, trying to figure out how to find and buy real estate properties. And that's before I had kids. Once I had kids, now I've got all three things, right? And it started to become You're juggling a lot. It was overwhelming. It's hard to be great at your job, great as a father, great as a husband, great as a real estate investor. And by the way, still have some personal interests, right? There's other things you want to do besides work and be dad and all those things, right? So if I could go back into that time, and the one thing that I try to uh, make sure I tell people now is that you can start by being a passive investor. You can start by joining a team like Darren's, joining a team like mine, and investing in these kind of deals to help you make money while you learn. Because if you go through that process, you may realize that's enough. Maybe you don't want to be active. 
I didn't really know that you couldn't be active. And I wasn't super rich where I could just take, you know, half a million dollars and just invest it in different deals. So I felt like I had to, you know, be active, be hands-on, bought a two unit building, bought a three unit building, bought an eight unit building, I did some flips. And if I could go back, I probably would have invested passively made sure that, hey, this is something I'm really passionate about. I am interested. I do want to be hands-on. I understand how this works now. And that's a great transition to being active as opposed to building it up brick by brick. Um, it helped me doing it by myself starting out, but I went the first five years of investing only using my own money, saving up my money with my wife. And we would go out, we tag team these properties um, completely unaware that we could work with other people. And I think once we realized we could work with other people, then we were still nervous about it. We were still like, yeah, I don't want to take other people's money. And it just, I felt like I was be asking people to invest with me or asking people to help me. And I never wanted to be in that position. And sure. when it all clicked for me was when I realized I wasn't really asking people. I was providing an opportunity for people to join me. This is something a lot of people were interested in. They just weren't as obsessed as I was reading all these books and attending all these meetups and going out to the re-events and all like they weren't obsessed with it. It was a cool thing to do. They might look at it for 30 minutes, listen to a podcast episode or, you know, read an article, but they weren't going to obsess over it. So they would make mistakes if they tried to do it by themselves. So actually partnering was the best option for them. So that's that's kind of um, an important thing. If you are interested in investing, you can certainly do it by yourself but make sure you understand what you're trying to do. If you're not trying to build a career out of this, if you really just want another stream of income, a little bit of a, you know, an insulation from mishaps or even vacation money, something help with retirement fund, whatever, don't make this your new full-time job because this is a job. It is not passive if you are actively doing this. I don't care what anyone says, you know, you're going to have to deal with tenants. You're going to have to deal with all those things. So make sure you're doing it for the right reasons and you understand what you're getting yourself into. Um, I'll pause. I know you asked point. me a question that I did not no, answer I, at all. So I'll come I'll right back to your add, question. Add to that because um, I've done both. You know, I, I, when I got involved, I started passively um, and then I started looking actively. Um, but, you know, I only got involved three and a half years ago. And now in, in 2021, I've had a number of deals that are, you know, they, it was a five-year business plan, but we're only in year three, but you know, it's a good seller's market. And, so I had one deal, I invested 50 grand. Well, they refinanced the property and gave me my 50 grand back and I still own the same percentage. And I, and I didn't have to do anything. I was a passive in that deal. I've got another deal that I put a hundred grand into. We're in contract now. I'm supposed to get that hundred grand back plus another hundred grand. Like, and again, there were other people that were managing that deal, you know? So it's, it's really surprising. I wish that I had known about this a long time ago because, you know, in different career paths, I had plenty of cash to invest in these deals, but I didn't even know that this opportunity existed. So what you said, I think is spot on. It's not you asking people for money. You're just presenting an opportunity. Hey, if you, if you want to make money alongside me, you know, come join me. If, if not, no worries. I go on to the next person, you know? So um, once you have that mindset shift, um, you know, I think it changes things for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're spot on. So your previous question was about kind of the meetups and Meet the podcasts and, and some of those things, right? And that sort of thing, yeah. So for me, when I made the decision, let me back up a little bit. So 
when I realized that, hey, you know what? Um, I bought an eight unit building. I got to closing. I wrote a check for six figures for closing. And I wasn't as joyful as I, I thought I was going to be. I thought I was going to be excited and like, cool, we got another one. I got my first commercial deal. And I just sat there and what hit me was, man, now I got to go through this again and go through this. What I meant is saving up six figures, me and my wife just saving up. I got my two kids now saving up six figures. So I have enough money to buy another one. I'm like, dude, I do not, I do not look forward to grinding out the saving process and just to get enough to buy another property. And at that moment, I started to really use my network. Um, I had a couple of folks I had met and within about a three month period, one of them um, I sat down with, I asked her directly, I said, hey, you went from nine units to 90 units in a matter of a year. How did you do it? And she said, I brought on partners. And I said, well, there you go. Uh, another guy I knew who bought a, a pretty large property apartment complex. I said, how did you do it? He said, I brought on partners. I work with investors. And I said, okay, starting to see a theme here, starting to understand the process here. Um, so I asked them both. I said, well, my fear is that I take on partners, I take on investors and deal doesn't work out. I lose their money. Well, that's why you want to align yourself with the right people. That's why you want to continue your education. That's why you want to continue to build your network. So I did a few things. The first thing I did was um, I started connecting with more people. I went on bigger pockets and I knew, realized the markets I wanted to try to shift to. I tried to connect with people in those markets, sat down, got lunch with them, you know, breakfast, whatever I could get. One of those individuals uh, ended up becoming my mentor. And he really helped me understand how to leverage um, podcasts and, and other mediums. And because I had a marketing background, it all clicked, not so much in like the how, but the why. And the why for me really came down to this. I didn't really see myself as a product, a brand, you know, any of that kind of stuff. And what I ultimately realized was that multifamily is a business just like any other business. You know, we, we look at real estate as its own little separate thing that's different. And you've got contractors and you've got drywall and all this other stuff. Right. But it's still a business and any good business, you know, you have to have a marketing side. You have to have sales. You have to have marketing. You have to have human relations or HR. You have to have your operations. You have to have your finance, right? And from a sales and marketing perspective, if you don't have the capital, then you need to raise capital. Or if you want to just build a business where you partner with other people, well, you have to attract that capital. You have to raise that capital. You have to have investor relations. And those meetups, those podcasts, all those things, they're ways to connect with other people. Now, when I launched in my head, I was going to do one meetup and 10 people were going to run up to me with $50,000 in their hand and say, here, John, here's my 50K. Can't wait to get into your next deal. It didn't happen like that. When I launched my podcast, I expected to get emails, you know, just flooding my, my inbox. Hey, dude, can't wait to invest in your next deal. I got 100K ready to go. Did not happen like that. So I had to step back and one, understand what the real expectations should be. But then two, really commit 
And I think this is an important thing for anybody who's thinking about launching a meetup, thinking about launching a podcast, a thought leadership platform, as many will call it. You have to ask yourself, why are you really doing this? And I get, yeah, you're going to raise money. I get that. What value are you providing to other people? Why would someone want to attend your meetup? Why would someone want to listen to your podcast? What value are they going to get? And I go back to my marketing days, right? If you have a brand, a product or service, there's an expectation from the consumer. There's an expectation that if I attend this event, watch this commercial, watch this video, listen to whatever, watch this movie, I'm either going to be entertained I'm going to get educated on something. Something's going to make my life better. What is that for the stuff we're doing? And when I changed my perspective on our meetup, the podcast, those kind of things, that's when we really started to see more results because it was less about me and what I was hoping to get out of it. And it was really focused on how do I help people with the information they're looking for and truly be a value, truly be a service to all these people who are looking to grow as real estate investors. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, it's a, a shift from like what's in it for me to what's in it for them. And when you start focusing and helping others, then just kind of like life le- lessons that it comes back to you, you know? So you help you know, these 10 people, well, maybe those 10 people, some of them will invest with you, but maybe it's a completely different 10 people, you know, because you help these and then all of a sudden you, out of nowhere, these other people come, you know, flooding your way. So it it is, um, but it's a, it's a way to connect with other people that you may not have connected with before um, and provide them value. Um, I know that even just social media, when you know, when I was getting started, people were like, you know, hey, you should start, you should start an Instagram thing. I'm like, oh man, that's like for my kids, you know? And I was nervous to hit post. Like, you know, what are people going to think? What, you know, am I adding value to them? What, but then all of a sudden when you start talking to people, somebody DMs you from Las Vegas or Chicago or wherever. And like, you, you know that you wouldn't have talked to that person otherwise. You're like, Hey, it's I'm connecting and I'm helping other people, and and that's a that's a big um, avenue. So I love your why um, that you shifted from what's in it for me to what's in it for them. Now you talked about losing a little bit of joy or not having a ton of joy at the eight unit. What now that you're doing the bigger deals? Are you excited about doing those deals? <laughs> I'm absolutely excited. And the, the thing with the eight unit was really, um, it's like climbing a mountain. You know, you climb a mountain, you reach what you believe is the top and you look up and you're like, oh man, this isn't the top. I got a lot more to go. So it's more of that, right? It's like you thought you were finished and you look up and you're like, man, I got a long way to go. And now I appreciate the journey more. So for me, it's every deal, every time we're able to partner with people, every investor conversation, it's really about appreciating the journey, the gratitude I have for people, you know, believing in us and trusting us with, you know, their, their, their investments 
and really just helping people. So we get super excited about every deal we do. Um, and even going back to the eight units, it's one of those things that was great to happen because I don't think I would have pivoted to helping other people if I didn't feel that way, you know, and I, and I felt that way because I was doing it by myself, you know, and it's, it's, it's this lonely journey when you're doing it by yourself. So when I was doing that, it was like, all right, I got to pick myself up and climb this hill. Now I got a team. Now I have people to, to, to walk up this, this hill with me. Right. I mean, that's, that's way more fun if you've got people that you're partnering with versus you managing your own sing, you know, portfolio, whether it be single families or small multifamilies, but doing it by yourself. I mean, you're a one man show and, and how, how much can you scale that? How many right. systems can you put in place before you have to at least get employees? Right. So it's just not as fun and it's, it's, it's a job. And that's what it, I think at that point, um, I had picked up a second job and um, hadn't really processed that, man, the way we're building this is actually not sustainable and not the best way to grow based on my goals and my objectives. Man, a lot there. So I love that you said that you're focused more on the journey now. Um, you know, look, you hit a certain level and then you asked a great question to a number of people. How did you do it? You know, you look at other people that are ahead of you and you're like, how did you do it? How did you do it? How did you? And you don't have to recreate the wheel. All of a sudden you see a theme and you're like, oh, I could do that, you know? And then byproduct is you're not only helping your family, but you're helping all these other families as well. Um, you know, I have another business that I trade loan portfolios between banks. All the profit comes into my, that business is for, for myself, my, my family. But these syndication deals, you know, we're investing money into it, but we're also helping grow the wealth of all these other people, which that is fantastic and, and gets me excited because it's not just about, all right, how much more can I get? It's, it's about like, how can I add value to this property and then help grow our wealth, but help grow the wealth of so many other people as well. Um, so you talk about... Um, you know, you mentioned a mentor. Talk about mentors in your life and, you know, the impact of, of having a mentor or multiple men mentors. Yeah, I think mentorship is so key because this is a, this is a difficult business, you know? I mean, it's, it's numbers, that's one part, but there are a lot of different components to it. And for me, you know, I, I was a... I was of the belief that you can do this by yourself and you were supposed to, you know, that's what the books are for. You're supposed to go out there, read a book, go out there. We just told you how to do it. Go do it. And, <laughs> and I, I just felt like, I don't know. I just felt like the people I knew, that's how they invested. You know, the few folks I knew who invested, that's how they were doing it. Um, and mentorship was something that people really didn't talk as much about. They weren't as proud to have paid someone to mentor them. And, what I found is when I was at that point where I wanted to work with other people, it became less about me and more about how do I make sure I protect them and hiring someone who has been down that road, who could, you know, help me shorten the learning curve, help me avoid big mistakes. That was invaluable. That was a really important aspect for me to feel comfortable working with other investors. So that was absolutely paramount to me. And then I would say beyond that, 
you know, I have folks all in all parts of my life that mentor me in various ways. And I mentor other people in, in various ways. So I just think it's really important to have people in your corner who can help you shorten the learning curve, depending on where you're at, what your goals are, what your objectives are. It's really key because that's going to be the best thing. The best players in the world have coaches, you know, they have mentors, they have people who are helping them get to the next level, get the most out of the skill, the talent, the resources they have available to them. And you should be no different. I don't care where you're at. If you're a beginner, if you're intermediate, if you're advanced, you should be trying to figure out how do you take advantage of the skills you have. So, I mean, I have two active mentors right now, um, like paid mentors, and I have a, a host of uh, unofficial folks who mentor me and assist me. And I get a chance to, to talk to people every week like you do on the podcast and get a couple of nuggets each from every conversation that helped me in the business and help me reimagine some things. And I just think it's key. You know, uh, I, if you really want to scale, if you really want to build a business, I think you have to approach it with a level of seriousness and a level of commitment that is true to what your goals are. If you just want to buy a couple of single family houses, by all means, you do not need to hire a mentor coach to teach you how to buy a couple of single family houses. Um, but if you really want to understand how to scale a business, certainly you can do it yourself. And that may take you five, seven, eight years to do it. Or you can work with someone else who can shorten that learning curve and maybe you do it in a quarter of the time. And that was great. Um, you know, you said everybody has coaches. I mean, like all the best teams have coaches. And, um, but I don't know why, but there's certain people that have a mindset of, oh, this mentor is charging me money. And like, I want to guarantee that I'm going to get the return. And I kind of am puzzled by that because it's like, well, if you do want to get to the next level and you know that that person has, you know, the experience and the skills to potentially get you there, there's still, you know, a responsibility of, to yourself that once they provide guidance that you actually go out and take action and, and do it, you know? So, um, it, but some people look at just the cost side and not, you know, the upside that you can get by learning from somebody that's already done it. Yeah. I mean, look, I like to tell people that mentors are not magicians, so they can't make you something that either you're not. I mean, you can get the greatest coach in the world. You give him a five, four point guard, not a whole lot he's going to be able to do right uh, from us, from that standpoint. So I think part of what what I've been able to find out, what I've been able to see when I talk to people, prospects like that, because uh, we do we do some coaching as well. And and I've I've hired coaches myself. So I completely understand from both sides of that that conversation. I think what we're really talking about is, is there a a process and a system? Are the tools available? So that's the first part of the conversation is, hey, will I get the systems, the resources, the tools that I need to be successful. That's one. The second is really about, and this is way more important. The second is about introspection. And you have to look at yourself and ask yourself, why are you not successful today? And if you think it's because you didn't have this tool and that's the only thing that's missing, 
great, easy. But for most people, that's not the case. For most people, there are other issues that are at bay. There's self-doubt. There is self-pity. There is, you know, um, a lack of resources or more importantly, a lack of resourcefulness because there's there's a difference. Um, Those are the things that stop people from being successful because you'll get in your own way. You'll talk yourself out of things. You will talk. Yeah. You will talk yourself out of it. And a a mentor can't help you with that. You know, you may be in a state where you don't need a mentor or coach. You really need somebody who can help you understand your psyche and get you from a psychological standpoint to understand that you can do it. Because if you don't really believe and you can't have, you can't half heartedly do this. You can't think you can do it. And then give a 50% effort and be upset when you don't get the results you're looking for. But if you go hard, if you, if you follow a program, if you follow, you know, a success blueprint and you go hard, you will be successful. It may not be in a time frame that you expect to be successful, but if you stick with it, you will be successful. And a great coach is able to help you stay on that path, you know, and help you understand where you're making mistakes or what you can do to shorten that learning curve or adjust this or adjust that. And you want someone like that in your corner. You know, um, I, I will tell you, I remember I called my coach, um, I was supposed to analyze all these deals and I got about 20% into it. And I was like, dude, like I'm hitting a wall. I, I just can't get like, I'm busy with my day job. I got the kids. Like I, I just, I want to get through this. I know it's important, but I just feel like I, and I've never quit anything, but I, so I just felt like it wasn't going to quit, but I felt like I hit a wall and I just felt like it was taking me much longer than it should. So we had a conversation about it and kind of helped me get over that wall and, and uh, be successful. And I will tell you to your point, I mean, you could hire a hundred thousand dollar coach or a $5,000 coach uh, or $500 coach for that matter. the results are going to be based on you and your efforts, you know? So you're still going to have to put in work. You're still going to have to, um, you know, work hard. Um, But, you know, you can get the guidance that you need to be successful. So again, whether you get Pat Riley in your corner, you know, a great NBA basketball coach, or you get the local high school coach, either one can make you great. It depends on where you're at your level. And if you get to the point where you need to level up, that's great. That's the best thing you could have, right? Is go from the level you're at to the level you want to be. And then once you get there, you address the next, the next goal or the next obstacle. Um, but you got to get from where you're at to where you want to be. Right. On that note, I mean, it's like, look, you're coaching some other people that probably are where you were what, what before, and then you've got a coach that's ahead of you. Like it doesn't stop, you know, like we're, we're all trying to level up to get to the next level and you learn one thing and you get comfortable with that one thing. And then all of a sudden you, ha- you get tasked with, oh man, I got this opportunity, I, but you know, I've never done that before. And now all of a sudden you got to learn it and you're uncomfortable again. It's the journey. Hey, you're a marketing guy. Talk about how you took some of your marketing stuff and how you leveraged that in the investing world. 
Yeah, man. So, I mean, you, you hit it, right? So I think the big thing for me, when I got more confident in everything I was doing, and by the way, guys, I want to be real transparent here. Uh, for the first like two years, I was not extremely confident because I just didn't know what I didn't know. And while I had a coach and I had these things in my corner, I had this, this belief that I would get exposed or people would realize that, yeah, he's did some, he's done some deals. I've been investing for some years, but you know, he really doesn't know this, right? Whatever financial term you want to throw at me or whatever. Uh, I didn't know what BIPs was for a long time. Like, what the hell is a BIP? And uh, so it, it, it just, you know, some of those things take time to, to really get acclimated and understand what people are talking about. Um, where I got really confident was when I realized, you know what? You have to stop focusing on what you don't have and instead focus on what you do have. Where are the advantages you have? Where, where do you have super skills that probably exceed what other people bring into the table? And for me, it was the 15 years of marketing. We talked about my time at GM, but I also worked at, uh, worked on Coors Light brand, Nike, Mountain Dew, um, you know. All these no-name brands. Right? No-name <laughs> brands, right? So big stuff. You know, we've done, I mentioned, we've done Super Bowl events. I've done huge parties. I've done work with Kevin Hart, Miller Light. So- I've worked on huge, huge programs, things that people have seen. You've seen my commercials. I've done the Coors Light, you know, Ice Cube commercials. We've, so we've, the work that I've done has been seen by millions and millions of people. Um, the programs I've created, those kind of things. So for me, the credibility aspect really came more from my business acumen than being a bricks and mortar kind of guy, you know, I'm not the, I'm not the guy to walk in look up at a ceiling and tell you they use a quarter inch round draw. Like, I don't know. I do not know. Um, but I understand business. I understand the business plan. I understand how to model out project management, those kind of things. And once I got comfortable with that and understanding like, Hey, you know, we can, we can find the right partners who are more heavy on the real estate side, the construction, all those things. That's how we actually build a business to scale because many of them have no clue how to actually build a business through marketing and sales. So we bring that component to the table. So with that marketing background, really being able to one, focus on how do we, how do we grow our, our deal flow as well as our investor relations, that's really the biggest thing. So uh, from an investor relations standpoint, I tell people all the time that there are three C's um, to attract capital for deals. Okay. The first is going to be confidence and confidence is not like fake hubris, right? It's not you just walking in and believing you can do it just because you listen to Tony Robbins this morning. Confidence comes from your experience. It comes from the repetitions. And I don't care if you've never done a deal. If you've never done a deal, you can still build confidence by what? Hiring the right people in your corner, building that team by underwriting dozens and dozens, if not a hundred deals, by analyzing the market, by talking to brokers, by networking with other professionals. You can build the confidence in what you're doing and what you're saying by surrounding yourself and putting in the work. So confidence comes from actual experience. It's not about how many units you have in your portfolio. It's about the steps you've taken to educate yourself and make sure you're prepared. Okay. So that's confidence it comes from that preparation. The second C is credibility. Credibility comes from 
the actual experience that you have, whether that's in the business world, whether that's the amount of units you've owned, you've managed, you know, whatever it is there, but that's the credibility. Again, you don't have to have the experience managing business or managing um, um, real estate, but you need to, you need to demonstrate that you're actually, you know, capable of doing what you say you want to do. You know, you have to have some credibility in that space. And then the third is going to be connections. You have to have the folks that you need in your circle, not just investors, but also, again, the team, the, the, the uh, partners, the property managers, the brokers, the lenders. You need to have those connections in place to truly attract capital. So those three C's are paramount. The confidence, credibility, and connections those things right there will really put you in a position to, to grow. And marketing is a key component to help you grow that. If you're missing, particularly on the connection side, but if you're missing in one of those areas, I would really tell you to step back, think about it. And even going back to what you said with coaching, what I find is most people lack confidence. Uh, so when you're asking those kind of questions, what you're really saying is, I'm not confident in my ability to make the right choices or to be successful. You know, someone's if you've been on the fence about a program or something like that, what you're really saying is, I don't have confidence that I'm going to make the right decision. So I'm trying to find some other reasons. So I'm trying to rationalize it. But that's the emotional. The emotional thing is you're scared you're going to pick the wrong thing. And I think the, what you should be focusing on is what do I need to be successful and what do I need to change about myself or what I've been doing? to, to be successful in markings. It can be a huge answer to that question. And that's what I've found for a lot of people. So when we do our, um, my platform for the podcast is target market insights, multifamily and marketing, and our, our coaching platform is really rooted in multifamily and marketing as well. So again, my multifamily background is probably average. I, I think there are a lot of guys of great multifamily experience, but the marketing experience, you know, 15 years working on these big brands, working with influencers, understanding search engine optimization, understanding how to attract, you know, visitors to your website, understanding how to build a brand. Those are the things where I've really uh, excelled. And I think I help other people learn how to leverage some of those tools to grow their business. That, that's huge. Um, look, there's, I'm sure you've seen it. There's people from all walks of life that get into real estate investing right? There's engineers, there's business owners, there's doctors and lawyers and, you know, guys that started in single family fix and flip. And um, so everybody comes at it with a different skill set. So what I love what you said was that, you you know, you partner with people to complement, you know, that. So you're really strong on the marketing side and then you find partners that are really strong in another area. And then the team, is pretty darn strong altogether, you know? So that, that's fantastic. Um, hey, what, what makes you fearful now? You've already done all this stuff. Do you still get scared of stuff? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I still, well, fearful is not the word for me. What I would say is there are, there are things that I'm always cautious of and things that I'm always looking at and you're always going to have problems that you have to address. So for me, there, there are multiple things. I think that those things for me never change. They're, they're kind of the foundation, right? So we talk about, um, 
you know, this, this business is really a, a combination of deals and capital, right? And then you got the execution and management. So we're always looking at those three things, our deal flow, we're looking at the capital and our investor relations, and then we're looking at the management and execution. So we're always looking at those three things. We're always looking to adjust. We're always looking to scale, right? So every deal you're kind of pushing a little bit, maybe it's a, a bigger deal than you've done before. Maybe the raise is a little bit more than you've done before. So there's always that, well, what if I, what if I don't hit it? What if, what if investors don't really like this deal as much? What if, what if, what if, what if? All those things in your head, right? <laughs> All the you things in your head, right? Them. And you, you may be right. And you may be right. And the key is really to be resourceful. I kind of alluded to this earlier, but the key is to be resourceful enough to figure out what happens if that scenario does pop up. And that's one of the things you always want to look into is like, if this, then that. And if you have those scenarios played out from a strategic standpoint, you don't have to worry about the what ifs as much. If this happens, we do this. If this happens, we do that. And it's less emotional. It's less of an emotional strain. And it's more matter of fact. It's, I used to love playing chess. I don't play as much now, um, but it's like chess. You know, you want to be three to five moves ahead and you're playing, okay, if he moves this piece and we're going to do this. And so you, you really have to think about it from that standpoint. And I go back to the networking. That's why networking is so key. Because if you run into any jam to have someone you can call, man, it's golden. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a quick example. We had a deal we were working on forever, um, forever, man, just forever. We did a HUD loan and um, it was just a, the HUD process. It was take like, like a, six, nine months, right? Listen, man, it, this, this was a nightmare. It took even longer than that. Um, in short, it became clear that we may not, we may not ever get it done with the, that approach with the HUD loan. I made one phone call and I said, um, actually, no, I sent out an update and then I got a response from one of my guys and my mentor actually. And he said, Hey, you should try this guy. They have some other loan products that may fit. Um, made a phone call, went back and forth for a little bit and boom, we got it. We got it situated um, and ready for closing. So you want to have on who to, and who to call. You got to have the, you got to have those relationships, you know, and the more you network, the easier all those things are because you don't have to panic. It's just a matter of, okay, we need to call such and such. We need to do this. We need to do that. We need to do this. And that makes it so much easier because now I don't have that pressure where I'm scrambling. And even if you are scrambling, you have your, in case of emergency call, such and such numbers too, right? So uh, that, that helps you sleep at night and figure it out. But I mean, we're always looking at the market. We're always trying to make sure we're making the right decisions. So um, I think a little bit of paranoia uh, is, is great for an operator to be thinking about their investor's capital and asking themselves, hey, are we making the right decision here? Is there something else we could be doing? Is there something else we should be doing? I think there's a healthy amount of that that every operator should have just to ensure they're doing the best thing for their investors. Absolutely, absolutely. Hey, earlier you alluded to doing, having some of your own interests too. What do you, what do you like to do outside of work? Well, um, man, <sighs> So my boys are, 
there'll be seven and my youngest will be five um, very soon. So seven and five. And I spent a lot of time. Yeah. So I, I stay pretty, pretty busy with them. Um, but you know, a couple of things, I'm a big Browns fan from Cleveland's a big Browns fan. Uh, so try to, you know, just stay on top of what's going on with those guys and a lot of my friends back home and a lot of my connections are, 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 you know, fans as well. Um, you know, from a personal standpoint, I've been hitting the gym pretty hard. So I really do enjoy working out. Um, I used to wrestle in high school and I think something, something kicked in, you know, around COVID where, um, I think just, working out became a real big priority for me. So that's something that's, uh, it's been really important and really just travel, man, just leisure, trying to make sure we take a moment, enjoy what we have here. Um, taking the time with my wife to relax, to date nights and things like that. And, um, you know, just trying to see the world, you know, just really enjoying what we do have in front of us. Fantastic. Hey, if people want to reach out to you and get to know you better, what's the best way for them to, uh, to do that? Uh, the best thing to do is we've got a sample deal package on our website. If you are interested in investing, either being an active investor or you are interested in being passive, check out our sample deal. It's uh, kasmancapital.com slash sample deal. And uh, that will also put you on our newsletter. You'll get updates as far as, um, you know, our podcast, as well as any deals that we're working on. So just go to kasmancapital.com slash sample deal. And if they, if they just went to kasmancapital.com, is the sample deal visible or do they have to know that? Um, it's visible. You'll see it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Just want to make sure they, they, they get access to it. So, um, John, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, I love your background. I don't meet too many people that are marketing, um, gurus. So it's, it's nice to, um, to have somebody in that corner that I know. Um, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that one until, uh, next week. Sign off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend. 